This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is fiction writer and essayist Christopher Castellani. His novels include All This Talk of Love, The Saint of Lost Things, and A Kiss from Madalena. His latest work is a collection of essays on the craft of fiction called The Art of Perspective, Who Tells the Story. Castellani is the artistic director of Grub Street in Boston, one of the country's leading nonprofit creative writing centers. He also teaches fiction at the Warren Wilson College MFA program and Breadloaf Writers Conference. His book, The Art of Perspective, contains six essays on narration in fiction, which offers writers and readers insightful meditations on how an author is telling a story. We began the interview discussing why he chose to write about point of view. The the most important question that I've asked both as a reader and as a writer um, when it comes to really anything, fiction in particular, but really anything, is who's telling the story and what is prompting them to tell the story at this time in this way. And for me, that's the essential question that any story comes down to. And so in all my years of teaching, um, in workshops, in various various places, it's always the, it's always the central question that I want the writer to answer about the piece that they're writing, because it really does lead to the the whatever problems or issues there are with the story always come back always comes back to who's telling it and how they're telling it. Um, and so when I was approached to do a craft book. I immediately thought, well, I have to do it on the question of of narration because I really don't think as much as people talk about point of view, as much as people talk about character, um, as much as people talk about structure or description or setting, um, we really don't pay enough attention to the ramifications of the what I call in the book the narrative strategy of why this particular narrator is telling the story in this particular way. Um, and and so I wanted to kind of meditate on that question and really try to look at books that I love and stories that I love um, and try to figure out um, what I can learn, what, what we can learn from, from the narrators and the way they're telling it. So I guess one of the things that I'm curious about is often when your mind is absorbed in something, even if it's scuba diving, you kind of see the world maybe differently. And I'm wondering, as you spent a year really thinking and writing succinctly about perspective, how it might have changed your thinking about the world at large. I have to say, writing, writing this book more, it more validated and affirmed and intensified my feeling about this particular topic. So um, anytime I watch anything, whether it's a political speech, which um, I'm watching a lot. I'm watching a lot of political speeches these days, whether I like it or not. Um, given that this is an election year, um, whether it's a political speech or you know any film that I see, or uh, even something as innocuous, so to speak, as a Facebook status update, I'm just much more highly conscious of the way that the narrator is constructing him or herself, the particular way they are trying to convince you of something, whether it's to vote for them, whether it's to get, get you know, in, 
implicitly or not, like their status and like this story that they're telling you about their child or their dog or their what they had for dinner on Facebook, or whether it's to get a strong reaction to the movie that they've constructed. Uh, whatever it is, I just am seeing more and more how crucial that narrative role is and how it really is everywhere. It's, it's in um, dating profiles. It's, you know, those, um, the ways that we um, connect with each other at work, making all kinds of arguments for um, whatever we're trying to get, um, trying to make happen in, in the workplace. All those things all come back to the way that you're telling the story and how you're constructing yourself for your listener, your reader, your viewer, um, whatever. So it's really, writing this book has really just made me just even more attentive to that constant self-construction that everyone is doing at all times and that things like social media only make more um, manifest. So in the very beginning, you give us about two paragraphs of a personal story about you and your husband walking down the street in Philadelphia and you were going to both celebrate your life together and this parting because you were going to be separated for a while. Yep. And and you say after the first two paragraphs, I want so badly for you to know how it felt to walk beside him at that moment. Mm-hmm. And and you go into sort of the particularity of the night. Yeah. And this, I felt with a sentence, I felt this yearning uh, for communication and it mm-hmm. sort of reminded me of the gulf between people that exist because we can never be someone else and the gulf that exists between reader and writer. And mm-hmm. I just wonder, can we capture this? No, <laughs> I don't think we can. I think, I, think, I think that the best we can do is get a very close approximation to what we want the reader to feel or the space we want the reader to inhabit. And there's always going to be this separation. And I guess maybe the most successful writing is the kind that feels as though there is no separation. But of course, there always is because whatever the writer has in his or her mind is never going to end up on the page, first of all. So there's already a distance between the writer, the writer's image in their mind of what the story they want to tell, what ends up being on the page. So in that example, you know, I talk about the streets of Philadelphia in that moment, late summer, uh, that sense of like anxiety about the fall and Labor Day weekend, and and again being on the streets of Philadelphia after a rainstorm or whatever. And I have particular associations with that. Those images mean something to me, even outside that particular context. But uh, every reader, when they when they read details like that, has their own baggage, right? Their own associations. They might have visited Philadelphia once and been mugged, or uh, they might have grew, grown up there and fled there. So they already have this their own individual unique associations with whatever details the writer brings, you know, the writer puts on the page. And right in there, there's a distance, right? Right in there, there's a, there's, there's a separation between the world the writer is trying to create and, you know, the world the reader is encountering on the page. Those two are never going to be the same. Yeah, I mean, I guess to follow up, what your basic thesis of the book is, is that writers use something called narrative strategy, which Mm -hmm. is a set of organizing principles that inform how the author is telling the story. And you Mm -hmm. write, if perspective is a way of seeing and narration is perspective and action, then a narrative strategy is the how and why of that seeing. 
So um, if you were going to explain this to just your average reader in a little more detail, can you do that? I think the best example, since um, you know, take it out of the book world for a second, I talk about this television show in the book um, called The Affair. And you don't need to have seen the, the, the show to really understand this. So what the show ultimately wants to be about, or it, 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 what, the, what the show ultimately is about, is that in, a, in, any, in any romantic relationship, there is no kind of true story about what happens between two people, whether they're married, whether they're having an affair, whether they're parent and child. There's only, like, the, the thesis of the show is that there is no, really no truth. There is only individual truth. Um, what happened in our relationship, in my relationship with my husband or my wife, is, is, is only really the way, it's only really the way I've experienced it. And so, um, and, and in a way, and it sort of argues implicitly that people, kind of like you were just asking about the reader and the writer can never really be together, it kind of is implicitly arguing that no two people can ever really share the same life. They can never really share the same story. Only, you only have your story, and that's all. Um, and yeah, you might agree on a few details of your relationship, of your life, but, but ultimately, it's you, the only story you really have is your own. Um, and so, um, if, you're gonna t if that's going to be your central thesis, um, what better, so that's your, that's your, um, you know, that's your, um, you know, that's your theme or your thesis. So now we're, so now the narrative strategy is the how, right? Um, so how are you going to tell this story in which you want to get that point across? Okay. So the way that these creators of this TV show have done, have chosen to do it is to tell, um, the story of this marriage and this affair, um, through, um, first, they will show a set of scenes through one character's perspective. And then they'll show sometimes the exact same scene through the other, through the husband's or the wife's perspective. So we're seeing, we're seeing the same events, but from, and if this is not, it's not just Rashomon, it's not just he said, she said, it's really arguing that, 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 in, and sometimes even the most basic details are, um, are not agreed upon. And, and, and so that's the how that points directly to the why, right? And that's why, that's an example of when, of how the narrative strategy is in direct harmony with the, the why or the theme of, of, the, of the product, of the piece, whether it's a TV show or, um, or, or a book. Um, and so anytime, so if you want to tell a story, it's not just enough to say, oh, I want to really put you in the moment. I want to really get you to see it and hear it and smell it. I want you to feel like you're there. That's great, but that's not enough. Um, you also have to think of how you're going to construct the story so that the themes that you're trying to get across are going to come through the most clearly. Um, so that's what, that's what a narrative strategy is about. And again, most people don't think of it as a strategy. They just think of it, oh, well, I'm going to tell a story about a relationship, so I'm just going to you know, tell it from one point of view or the other, or even both, but they don't really know why they're telling it that way. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is Christopher Castellani, author of the novels All This Talk of Love, The Saint of Lost Things, and A Kiss from Madalena, and an essay collection called The Art of Perspective, Who Tells the Story. 
So one of the things that you say throughout this is that a story teaches its author how to tell it, mm-hmm. meaning, you know, whatever you're writing about, you can't write it the same way. You can't write Lolita with the same voice that you write a passage to India. But right. I'm curious about how how you've experienced this in your fiction. Good question. Yeah, And I think, you know, at the risk of talking too much about um, my own work, um, I think that the best example really would be to talk about how I came up with the narrative strategy for the last book that I wrote and how it could not have been the same narrative strategy as the book you know, prior to it. Um, so um, in the, actually in the, first, in the first two novels that I wrote, I was telling the stories from multiple perspectives. And honestly, I didn't think more about it other than, well, I don't want to just stick with one character because that's not interesting to me. That was as far as I thought, really. Is I'm kind of more, I'm interested in multiple characters, so I want to write from multiple perspectives because I want to kind of spend time with each of them. And I worried that, in a way, I was worried that one character, just one character by him or herself couldn't carry a whole book. Um, that was as far, that was the extent of my narrative strategy was I didn't want to be bored, you know, with, with being stuck with one character. But when I got to the third novel that I that I wrote, I knew that I wanted to tell a story about a family, and I wanted the main character to be a family. Um, and but I but I knew that if I gave each character in this family equal weight and um, told the story from each of their perspectives, that it would be a kind of ensemble piece that would be almost too muddy, right? You wouldn't be able to tell, well, whose story is this? You know, why am I, who, who am I supposed to care the most about? Which is what I think most people, how most people feel when they, you know, open a book or watch a movie. There's really just a kind of, there's one or one, maybe two characters at most that they feel like carry the story. I needed to come up with a way of telling the story about a family, but kind of privileging one of the characters. And I wanted to do that through narration. So the way that I did that in the third novel was my narrative strategy was that each of the characters would have different sections. And when you were in each section, you only saw that scene through that particular character's point of view. Um, So if we were in a scene with two or three people and we were in the son's point of view, we only understood or saw that scene through his through his perspective. We wouldn't switch to another character to get their perspective. Except for one character, the mother character in the story. She was allowed to break into another character's section and kind of take over the narration. So her consciousness was privileged in this novel. Um, She could at any time take over. And it may not be something that a reader picks up on, that they... It, most readers don't think, oh, what's the author's narrative strategy? But I think there's a kind of subliminal or subconscious effect that this kind of thing has on the reader where subconsciously they, they notice or they feel that the mother's consciousness is um, somehow privileged over the others, and therefore that this is this mother's story. And to speak more to the how and the why, the mother... Over the course of this novel, the mother succumbs to Alzheimer's, so she loses her um, ability to narrate her own life, really. And I wanted the novel to be about that. 
So in that way, the narrative strategy relates directly to the theme of the novel. Now, that particular strategy, having four characters, four different points of view, with one of them privileged, that's not going to, that's not good, that's not transferable. That's not going to work in my next book. Even if I have four characters, it's not going to work. Um, just like a narrator like Humbert Humbert is not the narrator that you want to narrate, um, you know, um, The Great Gatsby, right? It's, or, or a book that is, that has a different, obviously, set of terms. Just because you come up with a great character and a great strategy, it doesn't mean it's going to work again. It really is only, it should, in fact, only work for this one, the one book or the one story that you're constructing. You talk a little bit about this, about the moral imperative of a text. Can you talk a little more about that? It seems to me that these days, <laughs> um, writers are less inclined to take on an omniscient narration. So less inclined to have a kind of all-knowing or a moral vision, I guess, for the world they're creating, right? In the 19th century and early 20th century, most books were, most novels were written, and again, that may or may not be true of most novels, but many novels were written with this kind of moral vision, this kind of um, almost godlike approach to telling the story of a time or a town or a family. And now what we're, I think what we're seeing so much of are books, frankly, like the one I just described, my own book, in which the, narrated, the narration is prismatic. Many different characters are telling their pieces of the story. And I think part of that is an anxiety about having a strong, clear, quote-unquote, moral vision for a story, for a family or a town or a time period or a region. Writers are kind of timid about being stacked with moral authority, I guess you could say. Um, they don't want to be accused of believing that this is the way they think the world really is. And so you have characters, you create characters who contradict each other, who have different moral values, who are one's, one's more of a quote unquote villain, one's more of a quote unquote hero. And you can kind of take cover in the character's behavior because, oh, none of those are, none of those could ever be mistaken for my, my vision of the world, right? And so you can always kind of hide behind that. Um, I think you can hide behind it a bit less when you choose a more omniscient point of view, when you put out, when you put yourself out there as a writer and, you know, choose to take a strong, I guess, moral stance. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is Christopher Castellani, author of the novels All This Talk of Love, The Saint of Lost Things, and A Kiss from Madalena, and an essay collection called The Art of Perspective, Who Tells the Story. One of the things you talk about in your book that I thought was really interesting was just the how an epigraph, which you see before um, in the pages of a lot of books, Mm -hmm. Um, that's usually a quote that comes first or several quotes, mm -hmm. which I kind of love. Sometimes it's mm -hmm. a map for reading the book, but you were talking about how it takes you out of the author's voice. Can you, can you talk about that? Sure. Um, yeah, it's, and it's not quite that it takes you out of the author's voice. It's something that creates a distance between the reader and the story, right? I think that on some level, even though a reader, when they open a book, knows that an, an author has written it, right? They know it's a constructed narrative, right? Um, they know that it didn't just appear from the ground, you know, like a plant. <laughs> they know that it actually was constructed by someone. Just as we've just talked about the narrator who 
can seduce you and take you in and, and make you kind of um, take you into another world. Readers open books kind of wanting to forget that anyone really wrote it at all, right? They, they, they want, I mean, at least I do, I, I, I crave a kind of feeling of, like feeling that the book is organic in some way, right? That, that, that it wasn't, manip- that, you know, what's the worst thing that you can say about a book or one of the worst things you can say about a book is that it was manipulative, right? Um, that means that the writer has taken this heavy hand and, and, um, you know, and manipulated you into feeling something maybe you didn't want to feel. And what, when, when people complain about a book being manipulative, what they really are saying is that they, they saw the hands moving in the marionette uh, show, right? They saw the ventriloquist lips moving too much. They were taken out of the fictional dream, and they were reminded that someone was telling the story and wanting them to believe something that wasn't true. So what an epigraph does, and I love epigraphs myself, it's, but it's a, very, it's a very small, subtle point. But what an epigraph does is it's just a brief reminder right at the beginning of the story that this story has been constructed by someone else, right? And it's asking, and it's a sets up a lens um, through which the author wants you to view, or like as you say, a map through uh, with which the author wants you to read the story. And right with that move, it that is a that creates distance. Now most of us, of course, forget in some way about that map or that lens when we're in the midst of the of reading a novel or a story we do we do let that feeling that that the story or this experience is organic we let that kind of take over but then when we step away you know um we are reminded i guess when we think about the story through the lens or with the map that it has been constructed um so again i'm not saying at all that a map or i mean that an epigraph is a bad thing at all but it's an example like like a like a chapter title, like putting the dates at the beginning of the of the chapter, like having footnotes, like having documents, like having anything that kind of break takes you out of the fictional dream. Those are moves that create distance uh, between the reader and the and the text. Uh, and again, those aren't bad things. But I, what I want writers to understand, if they want really hard, most of all, for the reader to feel deeply connected, deeply invested, deeply connected to the character, sometimes those elements can take them away from the character, and they may not want them in the story. So one of the things that I've heard a lot just in different circles with people talking about writing is that some people have very strong feelings about first person. Usually the strong feelings are hate. Um, and But but people don't really hate. They're not like, I hate third person. I hate it. Right. So I'm just curious, you know, as you've been diving into perspective, why do you think people mm-hmm. dislike first person? I love it. I love it as a reader. And I think the reason why um, you're here, why, why we both hear it from writers, is that it feels somehow cheaper than third person. It feels somehow less complex. Um, it feels um, easier. Um, it feels um, like almost like a shortcut. Uh, uh, to, I think writer, a lot of writers kind of underestimate how difficult it is to do well. And so um, there's a kind of suspicion of it. Um, third person, without question, has more layers, more more complexity. Um, the whole question of narrative distance um, in third person gives it a kind of weight, a kind of um, heft 
and seriousness that um, that that first person has to work harder to achieve. And it makes that whole question of seduction, a narrator taking a reader by the hand and, and, and inviting them in, it makes that seem more bald or more crass somehow, you know, it's it's so it calls such attention to itself, you know. Um, so I think that may be some of the reason for some of the resistance or the uh, the reason why some writers don't take it as seriously. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is Christopher Castellani, author of the novels All This Talk of Love, The Saint of Lost Things, and A Kiss from Madalena, and an essay collection called The Art of Perspective, Who Tells the Story. Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you as a writer? I am very happy to do that because I didn't talk about this in the book, but um, I've been more and more anxious about the restrictions on fiction. We, we had talked about earlier the question of moral authority, omniscience, somewhat related to that. The idea that you're kind of not allowed to really directly tell the reader what a story means anymore, right, or what a novel means anymore. Where we kind of this process, like in the sort of modern mode or contemporary mode. It, it, I see so much fiction in which the, the, the reading it is a process of decoding what the author was really trying to say about these characters. Again, I think it's a way of authors not wanting to take a kind of responsibility for the themes that they're trying to address. It's a long way of saying that I look back to books that I loved and uh, that were written in the late 19th century, early 20th century, books that were kind of stories that were not afraid to kind of lay it out especially at the end, about this is what this book is about, this is what this character um, learned or realized. You know, these things we're not allowed to say anymore. We're not allowed to say the character realized anything or or finally understood something, right? Um, the reader is supposed to understand that and make their own decision. It's all about the kind of um, subjectivity of the reader. Um, anyway, so I looked back at um, one of my favorite stories, which is Henry James's The Beast in the Jungle, and the ending of that story in which the um, the character finally realizes that he's in, a, he's in a graveyard and he sees another man weeping at a grave and he realizes this thing that he's been afraid all his life, this character has been afraid that something terrible would happen to him. And he used this metaphor of the beast in the jungle would spring out and, and, and destroy him, right? He's been waiting his whole life for the beast to destroy him or kill him. And he realizes at the end here that the beast has already destroyed him because he has not been able to love. He has not allowed himself to love this woman that he's been going back and forth with all his life. Um, so this is the very end of, of this story. And it does something that we're just not allowed to do in fiction anymore, which is kind of just lay it out on the line and tell you what the story is about. And this this is what's inspiring me lately. So um, so this is the end. This is the last paragraph of the story. The escape would have been to love her. Then, then he would have lived. She had lived. Who could say now with what passion? Since she had loved him for himself, whereas he had never thought of her, but in the chill of his egotism and the light of her youth. Her spoken words came back to him, the chain stretched and stretched, 
the beast had lurked indeed, and the beast at its hour had sprung. It had sprung in that twilight of a cold April, when pale, ill, wasted, but all beautiful, and perhaps even then recoverable, she had risen from her chair to stand before him and let him imagine, imaginably guess. It had sprung as he didn't guess. It had sprung as she hopelessly, hopelessly turned from him, and the mark of the time he left her had fallen where it was to fall. This horror of waking, this was knowledge, knowledge under the breath of which the very tears in his eyes seemed, seemed to freeze. But the bitterness suddenly sickened him, and it was as if horribly he saw in the truth, in the cruelty of his image, what had been appointed and done. He saw the jungle of his life, and he saw the lurking beast. Then, while he looked, perceived it as by a stir of the air, rise, huge and hideous, for the leap that was to settle him. His eyes darkened, it was close, and instinctively turning in his hallucination to avoid it, he flung himself face down on the tomb. So here you have a guy who's literally throwing himself on a grave at the end of the story and having a realization. You're just not allowed to do that anymore, and that makes me sad. <laughs> Can you read something that you wrote, something that um, maybe was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Sure. Um, I'm going to read, I had referenced my most recent novel, and I'm just going to read the first paragraph of that novel. Um, the first line of it I wrote in 1991 for a creative writing class in college. And, um, and I never knew what to do with it. And I had it sitting in my drawer, you know, my, you know, metaphorical drawer, <laughs> um, for, you know, for 15 years, not knowing what to do with it. Um, and, uh, and I kept writing various paragraphs, um, with that same first line. Um, and, Finally, I settled on on this on this paragraph, and this is the opening of the of this of this novel called All This Talk of Love. Frankie Grosso and his mother watch the same soap, but they root for different women. He likes the the deranged ones, the pregnancy fakers, the poisoners, the tramps. Their necessary research for his chapter on the legacy of the Gothic and the construction of female identity. His mother favors the patient, dutiful wives, they of the shellacked hair and pantsuits and unshakable faith, and looks to them as examples of proper behavior in 1990s America. Frankie shouldn't be surprised. His mother's life has been a Jeremiah in two languages and two countries, and her 72 years have taught her to distrust romantic passion. Precious minutes on the phone with Frankie, she spends wishing doom on the amoral women of daytime, shocked that some network executive has allowed them to stray so far from decency in the middle of the afternoon. In life, she says tonight, after Frankie praises the pregnancy faker for her resourcefulness in finding her long-lost identical twin sister and persuading her to carry the baby she can't admit she lost. In life, you have the truth or you have nothing. And what he wants to tell her is, by that formulation, not a single member of the Grasso family, not to mention anyone he knows, has a blessed thing. Do you want to say something more about it? The reason why it's stuck is that, as I mentioned before, the mother is a central, becomes the central character in the story, and that the novel begins with this young man on the phone with his mother and their conversation. It kind of sets 
the tone and the structure for the whole rest of the book. Um, and it, and it, it also gets at one of the main themes of the book, which is this idea of, of truth, really, about, about honesty among, among family, about what is, what is fair to keep hidden and what is fair to, and what, is, what you are obligated to make known in your family. How much is acceptable? How many secrets are acceptable? And how and and like what kinds of secrets are acceptable and what kind aren't? Um, so a lot of that was kind of in, embedded in that, you know, in that first paragraph, and does kind of set the contract, uh, part of the contract for the way that this that this story is about. Ultimately, it is a father, it is a mother, excuse me, it is a mother-son story ultimately, and the mother and son are on the first page. Um, so. So I think in that way, I hope that it did the job of um, setting, setting, you know, the term, uh, setting the terms of the contract, um, inviting the reader in, uh, kind of allowing them to eavesdrop on this conversation between the mother and the son. Where do you write? Oh, gosh, I'm one of those annoying people who sit in coffee shops for hours and hours. Um, and I, I, live in, I live in downtown Boston, and they're about five or six coffee shops within walking distance and depending on the you know depending on my mood I'll go to either the louder one or the quieter one or the one with the better food or the one with the better coffee <laughs> depending on the day and I'm really I really find like like many writers that being out in the world with a lot of with a lot of the commotion around me it actually helps me to focus like the, the act of blocking out the world helps me to focus on what's on the, what's on the screen um, and the world that I'm trying to create. Um, so I actually need a world to react against in order to have a world to dive into. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I wish I could get away from writing, but I think like almost every writer I know, no experience is untouched by thoughts of the thing you're working on or something new that you could be working on or something that, you, something that you've read that you're, that you're trying desperately to um, figure out. Or that's just stuck with you, you know. I mean, I remember I was reading the novel A Little Life, which was getting so much deserved attention. I was so deeply invested in this in the, in the character, and it was this character was so many awful things were happening to him. And I I I was out with I went out with friends because I wanted to get away from this character in a way. To, I wanted to get away from thinking about this character because he was it was he was upsetting me so much. And I, we were out dancing, and I literally had to step off the dance floor. Uh, never had to do this before because I couldn't stop thinking about the character. So it made me think of just when writing is that powerful, when a character is, when, I, when, you, when you've connected with a character so strongly, um, you really can't escape them, you know? And I think that that's what most writers, the kind of character most writers would just kill to create is one that will stay with you even when you're out dancing with your friends on a Saturday night. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I'm lucky enough that I have, you know, I, I, I have a great community of writers uh, in Boston, um, mostly through Grub Street, which is a, a nonprofit writing center here in Boston where I work. And I'm lucky enough to have a bunch of fellow writers who are great readers and give great, honest, critical feedback. Um, but, the, you know, the thing is, Every book I've had, I've had different readers for. So I, I know I'm lucky enough to know enough writers that I would that I could tell. Okay, well, for this book, I think I really want 
you know, Lisa's opinion, or I really want, you know, Frank's opinion. Um, so I really, each book is kind of tailored to um, one or two writers um, in in my quote-unquote writer circle. Um, and so, and, but even, even with that, I never show anything to anybody, you know, until I have about 50 to 75 pages. Um, because by then, um, the book starts to take on, like starts to take on a little bit of momentum, um, starts to have a life of its own, starts to be viable. And I want to know kind of just how viable it is. I never show anything to anybody when I only have a few pages, um, because I, I feel like I should be able to figure that out myself. And how have you dealt with rejection? Um, well, um, I have a friend who says, and I, I very much try to subscribe to this, the, the day that something that you've sent out has been rejected, whether that's a fellowship application or a story that you're sending to a journal um, or anything, the day that you get that rejection, you have to put something else out there in some way. So. They don't have to be the exact same thing. So if you get rejected for a fellowship, you don't have to apply to another fellowship that day. But maybe you'll send out a, a story that day. Or maybe you'll send something to um, a friend of yours to read that day. Um, and the reason for that is she said um, you want to wake up every single morning um, with hope. Um, and I think that that and that, that, and that and hope is the, is the only antidote, is the only, um, you know, effective antidote to, you know, to rejection. Um, so I always, I really do try every time I'm rejected from something to get immediately get something out there or to make sure that I have something else um, out there so that I have something to hope for to take away the sting of that rejection that I've just gotten. Um, and I also give myself a time, a short time period to wallow. Um, I say, okay, I'm going to wallow and I'm going to feel sorry for myself for the next 20 until noon tomorrow. And then after that, I'm going to um, I'm going to just let it go, um, and that's really the only way to, that I've found uh, to deal with it. And it's constant. I mean, it is every no writer I know it doesn't deal with it on a weekly, monthly, sometimes daily basis. And what is your favorite word? I think I would have to say um, that my favorite word um, is you know the, you know the word sprezzatura? The Italian word sprezzatura. It's a term from, I believe, from the Renaissance, and it was a quality of, it was the highest quality that uh, a courtier um, could demonstrate. And what spectatura what means is the, is the appearance of effortlessness. Um, so it's the appearance that you absolutely aren't putting any effort into something, that it's easy for you, that it's, again, that it's organic, that it's natural, but really you've put a ton of work into it. You've, you've, you've taken the time, you've been thoughtful, you've been um, respectful of a process, but it looks as though it's effortless for you. And I think that the reason why I chose to choose that as my favorite word is because I think that's the quality of writing that readers most respond to, is, as we touched on briefly, that, that sense that it wasn't actually written or constructed, that it just kind of appeared organically. Um, and, and that it, you, where you don't see the, the kind of effort or the, or the, you know, the, the, you know, the ventriloquist lips moving or the marionette strings moving. Um, it's, it's that feeling of, of effortlessness, uh, and, and organicness. And, um, so, and plus it's a beautiful Italian word. So that kind of sounds like what it means. 
You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Chris Castellani, author of the novels All This Talk of Love, The Saint of Lost Things, and A Kiss from Madalena, and an essay collection called The Art of Perspective, Who Tells the Story. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.